We're going to study in uh, First and Second Thessalonians. We've made it to two Thessalonians, uh, and you okay over there, Mister Cold? Just going to blow your nose. And you scooted way back. It's it's either that or it on, drips all over here. the whole. Sorry, scoot more back, than you guys probably wanted to know, here. but um, I got one of those summer colds. You don't? I don't like summer colds. It's Mixed with fun. extreme allergies. Anybody have allergies? Ugh. Has it been like the worst of your? The okay, worst. I'm not the only one. It's like it's, I think, because it's so dry. It's almost There's unbearable. No rain. It, it my, is almost unbearable. My lawn is dead already, and I. We got no rain. We've gotten the, no rain. I shouldn't well, be. Thursday, was Ugh. it Thursday where it just started dumping? Yeah, and then like stopped. Crazy, and then stopped. Not yeah. enough to water my lawn. Oh, okay, man. where were we? Second Thessalonians <laughs> <Sorry>. 5. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty, pretty uh, awesome study that we've been going through in First and Second Thessalonians. We're in uh, the, the second book that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Probably the first two books that Paul actually wrote, or letters he wrote to churches. So kind of cool early on in church history. Yeah, even farther. Look at the line. Copy the line. Copy the line. Oh, no, up even me. further. Oh, yeah. But Go. I no, I don't want you behind me. You must increase and <laughs> I must decrease. Uh. So this is one of these texts where it makes sense if we read through the whole thing because we're going to c- kind of take it out of order. Mm. Uh, so let's read through the whole thing and then we'll give you a, kind of our big idea of where we're headed. We'll have the text behind us on the screen as well. We've got some Bibles over here on a table if you want to either borrow or keep one. And then we'll, I'm sure you've got some good Bible apps and stuff out there too. So, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who affect, afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a good old-fashioned hellfire and brimstone sermon going on here <laughs> it today. Does, it has the feel of that, huh? We were, we were uh, talking to Pastor Derek from our DuPont <laughs> campus. He told us about the curious case of George Wilson this week, which I, when I heard the story, I'm like, this, this has to be just made up. There's no way it can be real. But we looked it up. It's real. It's a thing. It's not the curious <laughs> case of Benjamin Button. Very similar. But, but not have, really. have any of you ever heard of George Wilson way back in when Jackson was president? Anybody? Okay, this is going to be new to you, too. This was new to me. I thought this was amazing. So imagine uh, you got convicted of a crime, and the president gives you a pardon, and you say, no thanks. This is what happened with George Wilson. It was uh, 1829, and two men, George Wilson and James Porter, they robbed a United States mail carrier. Both of them subsequently captured, and they were tried in a court of law. In May of 1830, Both men were found guilty of six charges, 
including robbery of the mail and putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. And both Wilson and Porter, were uh, they received their sentence. It was death. It was execution by hanging. Seems a little extreme. I know we don't really know the background on why. It's the mail, man. Do not mess with the mail, man. Death. Just seems extreme to me, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly the situation, but apparently this really happened. Back in 1830, that's what they did. So here it is. It's, it's May they get their sentence. On July 2nd, they're supposed to, that would be like two days from today. That they were supposed to both be hanged. Um, Porter ends up being executed on schedule. But Wilson apparently had some influential friends. And they pleaded for mercy from Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, you know, of the United States presidency. I'm sure you're familiar with him. So Jackson ends up pardoning Wilson right after Porter had already Porter. been hanged. I would be a little salty if I was Porter. You would be a little dead if you were <laughs> I would Porter. Be a little dead. But at the same time, I mean, Not if you're Porter, it's like, come on, man. We did this together. Why can't they fight for me, too? But uh, check this out. George Wilson refused the pardon. An official report stated uh, Wilson chose to waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. And he stated, I have nothing to say and do not wish in any manner to avail myself in order to avoid the sentence. So here they are. They're like, well, we can't kill you. And he's like, no, kill me. They didn't know what to do with it. It ends up going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says this. Um, the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property. And he may accept it or not as he pleases. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall later wrote, A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution, execution of laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered, and we have no power in a court to force it on him. <coughs> Believe it or not, we live in a world where each one of us has been granted a pardon, and yet some refuse to accept it. For whatever reason, I think George Wilson probably felt he was guilty, his friend died. He needed to die. He understood his guilt and wanted to be the victim of the sentence. Or not victim, but the, he earned it, he felt. However, I, we've got a whole lot of reasons why people reject Jesus Christ and the pardon that's granted us through him. Um, and most of the reasons are just foolish. Uh, today in our text, we're going to see the justice and the righteousness of God. And because God is just and right, there are only two eventualities for every human being on this planet. It's either receive the pardon of Jesus Christ or suffer a terrible, terrible fate for all of eternity. And that's a reality. And that reality needs to shake us and it needs to shape us because God is just and right. Yeah, so our text... You know, we, we read through it 
Um, and the reason for that is because there's texts at the beginning and at the end that kind of support the hopeful, the hopeful future for those who are faithful, for those who have accepted that gift. And in the middle, sandwiched kind of in there, is we're going to see the faithful future for those who do not accept that gift, who, who are evil. Um, so let's go back to the beginning. It's a very good place to start in verse 5. Well, he kind of sets up his argument. Yeah. Because God is just and right. This is evidence, he says, of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just. So we didn't just pull that big idea out of the air. It's here in the text. So our premise is found right here. Um, he even calls it evidence of the righteous judgment of God. But the evidence that he presents is kind of interesting. He says um, God's righteousness is proven. That the evidence is that you and I are considered worthy of the kingdom. So because God is just and right, we can experience his mercy through Jesus Christ. We don't have to have the sentence of eternal death uh, hung around our neck because Jesus himself paid the penalty so God's justice is completed through Jesus. Well, and because God is just and right, verse 6 is true. It says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So both of those statements, are, are they're simultaneously true. Both God being just and God being true and right. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we want to we somehow figure it out with our human logic. And a lot of people say, well, if God's really loving, how could he send anyone to hell? And that seems logical in our brains. But it's because God is just and right that both heaven and hell are a reality. And it's funny because we want to say, well, that's not just. The problem is justice is God. God is justice. It's not that you can just define God by the term. No, you define the term by who God is. A.W. Tozer put it in this beautiful, articulate way that I just had to read you guys. Justice, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. As gold is an element in itself and and can never change nor compromise, but is gold wherever it is uh, found, so God is God. Always only fully God and can never be other than he is. Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. God is his own self-existent principle of moral equity. And when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, he simply acts like himself from within uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. That's a lot. But God is just. It's so good. It is true. I mean, God is just, period. I mean, that that's who he is. And God is righteous, period. That's who he is. Um, he can't help but act that way. I love it. He can't help but be himself. I, I love how Tozier put that. I thought it was so beautiful said, but... Uh, but like we said, this, this truth has two simultaneous truths that we may think um, are somehow mutually exclusive. They're not. So let's look at the implications of each of those truths, though. First of all, let's look at the, uh, the hope-filled future for those who trust in Jesus' substitutionary death. 
Um, we see, first of all, that uh, believers will receive relief from our enemies. Since, indeed, God considered it just to repeat, repay those with affliction who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted. Um, relief is a word that has a couple of different connotations to it when you look at it in the Greek. First of all, it, it's just what it sounds like, relief from our suffering. Um, if you haven't been here with us the whole series, the Thessalonians were undergoing a ton of persecution. And people that were very opposed to the gospel were doing very actually horrible things to these uh, these Christians. So not like the suffering maybe that we we endure as far as just ridicule, although it's still difficult uh, to endure. They, they had physical threats and, and violence coming at them. So relief is like, you know, how do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-I-D-S. Uh, you know, when you pop the Rolaids, you get relief from the pain of the heartburn. That, that's what it means. But it also has kind of a second connotation. It kind of carries the idea of, of rest here. Believers are going to, they'll, they'll get rest from those sorrows. Paul says that we receive ultimate relief and rest when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we, we may not feel it today. We may not get that rest and that relief today in our current circumstances, but we will have that if we are children of God. We will taste that victory in the end. Because the Lord Jesus is victorious. Yeah. He is mighty and powerful, and he will not be thwarted. His angels are mighty. Rest is coming for the believer, even if we, yeah. again, are feeling really weary today. Yeah, we, we don't need to, to fear. We don't need to, to worry about the end because we know what is going to happen. Now, for the Thessalonians, and even for us today, but for the Thessalonians who Paul's writing this to, that must have filled them with so much hope and so much relief even if God their current the circumstances end. and their current situation on earth never improved, that God was coming again. Jesus was going to come again, and there was going to be hope and, and relief in that. But do I really believe that? Yeah, that's the question. I mean, especially in a vacuum, it's kind of easy to believe. We're like, yeah, yeah, even if my situation never improves, God is good, and, and he's going to win in the end. That, that sounds great. Well, what about when I'm really in it? <laughs> I mean, when you're really in it, when you've been in it for so long, you don't remember what it's like to feel well. You don't remember what it is like to feel content. You don't remember what it's like to feel like maybe there's hope uh, of, for your finances or for your marriage or for your kids. You don't know if you'll ever work again. You don't know if you'll ever be healthy again. I mean, it's been so long and you're so in the thick of it. It feels like there will never be victory. We can know that there will be victory. That God wins. He's already won. He's won the battle over death and sin. We can either live in that victory today, despite our circumstances, or we can wallow in the, the, the difficulties. Paul says, look at the reward. Look at the end. Yeah, so let's kind of skip now towards the end of, of this text, verses 10 through 12, and we'll kind of see what other promises of hope that God gives us as his children. Uh, verse 10, real quick. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because their testimony to you uh, was believed. So verse 10 says, when he comes, not if. There, there's no question. It's when he comes. For us, we have to ask ourselves, 
do we believe that? And I think for us as believers, we have to. Everything we base our hope off of comes from that. If we think it's if he comes, what are we doing? We're, we're way off base. So we have to make sure that we believe when Paul uses that word when, that Christ is coming back, when he comes again. Amen. Amen. It's a confidence. And that's the, the word hope. Yep. We've talked about that a lot in Paul talks about that a lot, one of his favorite words in these two books. Hope means uh, a confident expectation. It's not like, I hope it's going to happen. It's, no, I, I have a hope. I have a confidence. There's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so, first of all, we, we found out relief, both relief from the pressure, but also just rest in the Lord, which I don't know any of us that don't love rest. <laughs> Nap time is happy time. But so relief, rest, and now we're going to see also there's reward in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Amazing. Um, he says in verse 10 that, that he will come and that on that day he will be glorified in his saints. Glorified in his saints. Now, here is an amazing, amazing fact. Because, again, you may be the most tired saint today and you're thinking, boy, this, this is rough. But God says, you know what? I'm going to glorify myself in you. The glory of God exists. He is glorified. He is high and lifted up. He chooses to glorify himself in you and I. These fragile, frail people. Like, how does he do that? Well, I think, first of all, he does it through our transformed life. It it should be something that happens, that there is a change in me. Mm -hmm. Once I've trusted in Jesus Christ and entered in that relationship, I'm transformed. and, And I have completely different priorities. I have a completely different um, agenda. I have a completely different future that awaits me. It also happens in our good works, which we'll talk about in just a second here. Um, but the, God wants to show off his glory today, and he's going to make that a beautiful part of Christ's return as well in the future. I love this quote by uh, John Stott. He, he kind of gives this analogy of a light bulb in suggesting that that Jesus' glory shines through us as believers um, like the electrical currents do through like a filament. So let me read this. For when the current is switched on, it becomes incandescent. So when Jesus is revealed in his glory, he will be glorified in his people. We will not only see, but share his glory. We will be more than a filament which glows temporarily, we will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into his likeness. We will glow forever with the glory of Christ, as indeed he glowed with the glory of the Father. So cool. This, so this is a principle. We've talked about this concept before, an already not yet theological principle. There's an already portion and there's a not yet uh, portion to it. it. It's a future thing and it's a present day thing. Um, so the not yet is coming. We can know that with all our hearts, that even though we feel like, man, I'm not glowing much of God's glory today, or I'm feeling really weak, it's really difficult to do so, we can, we can look forward with this hope to this future when Christ returns, and we get to be a part of the electricity. We yeah. get to be part of the light show. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of what First John 3, 2 says. It says, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. <laughs> We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. See, we are his children now, and even what's going to be hasn't even yet been revealed. 
I mean, it's, it's amazing. So what that means, though, is that our job today is to look towards that future reality and make it a reality today to allow Jesus to be glorified in us, to become more and more like him, to fulfill his mission on earth and in his name. Which, like you're saying, includes worship today, just like there will be worship on that day, he says, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And I hope that my worship is that. You know, on a Sunday morning, I I know a lot of uh, I'm a super expressive person. My wife says I'm a woman on the inside. I know that about myself. I'm emotional. I'm expressive. I'm a big personality. And a lot, I fear, though, that some of the I introverts. Will spit out my water. Sorry. Yeah, please. A little, we call that a, a spiggle, the spit giggle. It's like, and this goes everywhere. I fear, though, that people think, oh, it's so easy for Kevin to be expressive in his worship because he's this gregarious personality. But I am different. I am a manly man and a womanly woman, and I have dignity, and I don't express myself in worship. I I fear that maybe, maybe we use it as an excuse because he says to be marveled at among all who believed. There is absolutely no way when Christ returns that most of us will look like we look on a Sunday morning. I'm telling you, there is no way. I don't care your personality, your upbringing, your introvertness or your extrovertness. When we see Jesus like coming down from the heavens in all his glory, that we're just going to be like, I'm praising you in my heart. I'm just not an expensive person. No! So why the heck do we use that excuse today? We are to be marveling at the Savior in all of his glory. Sorry, soapbox. I didn't even do that first service. Well, and all that is <sighs> true, Let me true for us. Whoa. Let me breathe. I got quick reflexes all right, today. we're back. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're good. So, but I think all of that for us as believers... Is true because, as Paul says, our testimony to you was believed. So entrance into the, into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, comes through belief, comes through uses, simple faith. He uses that word twice, yeah. believed. Yeah. So because God is just and because God is right, he poured out, his wrath had to be poured out on someone, right? The judgment had to come. And so that's where Jesus comes into play. Jesus comes from heaven to live on earth to accept that wrath that God pours out on him. And so because of what Jesus did, all those who believe that Jesus came and died and rose again and they put their faith in Jesus, we can be saved forever. We can become part of the family and the kingdom of God. So safe from that wrath that we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, living in close communication and love with God the Father. Amen. He goes on. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's been the end goal of everything that we've read so far? What's what's Paul's prayer? Number one, that God may make you worthy of his calling. And that's the key. See, we enter 
into a relationship with Jesus Christ, like you said, by believing in who Jesus Christ was and what he did. But then things, that, that seems rather easy, simple, because Jesus did all the difficult stuff. However, now we enter into this relationship where we are being made worthy of this calling. Now that's a little more difficult, but that's the key. Because God is just and God is right, he makes us worthy positionally with him, and then he makes us worthy in our real lives. Praise God it's him. Because I can't make myself worthy of the calling. There's absolutely no way. But God continually and constantly will make me worthy of my calling. So not only does is the goal that God makes us worthy of his calling, but also that he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So this, I think, speaks a lot to our identity. This is who we are. We are sons and daughters. We, we are citizens. We are, we're forgiven people. We're accepted people. We're made right by God and by Jesus' work on the cross. But on the other hand, we're reminded of the source of where that comes from, our, the source of our power and, and our strength. Again, it's, it's not us. We aren't the ones that make ourselves worthy. That's what God does. We're not the one that fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith. It's by his power. Yeah, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are saved for good works, and those good works are even ones that he put in our place so that we could walk in them. God gets all the glory and all the credit, both for our salvation and for our sanctification. I really like what he says, too, about this whole resolve, that God may help us fulfill every resolve for good. Because I think a lot of times we have the best intentions. I know this is true of me. <laughs> the best intentions and my follow-through sucks. I drop the ball somewhere. I'm trying to do something good, and it comes out ugly. Uh, you know, that happens so often. But we serve a God that even will take every resolve for good and every work of faith, and he's the one that's going to fulfill it and help us fulfill it. And that's how Paul is praying for these people. That's probably how we should pray for each other because God is just and right, he not only gives us a new identity and good intentions, but he helps us fulfill those, gives us the ability to act on them, which I think is just, just amazing. All right, so what's the other side of this thing, Drew? Well, I think the, <laughs> the second truth that we can, uh, actually simultaneous truth that we can get from this text today is the fact, uh, like we talked about, God is just and God is right. So if God is just and right, there's also a fateful future for those who refuse Jesus. So in order to kind of talk about that, let's move back to verse 6. Just read it real quick here. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So I think from this verse we can see that God's judgment is just. Well, what does that really mean? Well, like we've said before... God's justice, his righteousness is wrapped up both in the fact that he shows mercy to some and that he judges others. So the horror of separation from the creator in hell really still reveals the justice of God. Um, he can't just allow sin and affliction to go unpunished because, as we've said, he will always do what's right. 
So that's, again, why he says in verse 6, it is just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Uh, which kind of leads us, I guess, to that perplexing human question. Because we, we've all asked this at some point in our life. If God is just and every human is sinful, how how can God save or reward some and, and judge others and still be just? Ultimately, it's because of Jesus. When you think about justice, right, it repaying what is done, there's a reward for what's done. So whether it's wrong, in this case, what we're talking about, God is just. He doesn't just take off his justice cloak, if you will, when redeeming or or rewarding sinners. Because of what Jesus did, because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, it provided a way for God to show mercy without doing away with his justice. Because someone paid the price, and Jesus was the person that paid the price for my sin and for your sin. And so it's ultimately because of Jesus. Because we, we, need to st- we need to understand that every single one of us stands in front of God guilty. Because each and every one of us are sinners. But for those of us who have received that pardon, who have received the salvation and right standing with God because of Jesus' blood, God no longer sees that sin and that dirtiness. What he sees is the perfect, spotless blood of Jesus Christ. That perfect sacrifice for us, for your sin, for my sin. And so that is why God is a just God. He cannot cease from being just. Amen. I think that's why he says it this way in verse 8. And uh, this is talking about that eternal judgment and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Um, God's judgment and his vengeance will come down on who? On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel. So I've heard it put this way, that Jesus Christ, when he died for the sins of the world, he actually died for all the sins of the world. And the sin that really sends people to hell is disbelief in Jesus. It's not believing in Jesus. It's not accepting the pardon because Jesus took care of it all. And, and the Bible says that God is not willing that any would, would suffer and die. But he wants all to be saved. His desire is that we accept the pardon, but it, he's not going to force it on us. God's judgment is kind of scary. It is. And I think in these couple of verses that we see here, we begin to see that God's judgment is fearful. You, you know, look at the words that Paul uses in this, these couple of verses. He uses words like fire and afflicting, or in other translations, it's afflicting. Uh, vengeance, destruction. So all these words that Paul uses here paint this very dark, scary, painful picture of God's judgment. It paints this picture of uh, tribulation, of complete and utter punishment, uh, or uh, like ruination. And so what Paul is saying is that God is going to settle all of his, all of his accounts. Every... Um, Every account that he has of sin will be judged because God is just. And so those who have not received the free gift of salvation, 
they will those be destroyed and judgment will come on them. Don't obey the gospel. That's so funny because gospel means good news. So the good news of Jesus Christ is the thing that we're guilty of not obeying. Those are the ones who are going to suffer. And God's judgment is going to be rendered on all mankind who don't accept Jesus. It won't be done vindictively. I think us as humans, when we get vengeance, we, you know, for the justice, the injustice is done to us. When we take out vengeance on somebody, it's, it's vindictive. But um, God is the one that really holds vengeance because uh, his is just. <laughs> he brings justice to the injustices done to him or to others. He doesn't just bring um, this spiteful type of hate. He, he's just just. He just is. That's who he is. Um, it doesn't come from a heart of exacting revenge, but from a desire, a need to fulfill justice because of his very nature. I think another thing that we can see from these verses is that God's judgment is final. Mm. So it's fearful. It's final. <laughs> we were uh, we were talking about that fateful day this week, weren't we? <laughs> yeah. We were Super Bowl. We were in the Super Bowl, the Seahawks. My beautiful Seahawks. We could have won two Super this Bowls in a row. This may be too soon for some of you, so you it's can kind of cl- close your ears. It needs to be talked about, Drew. <laughs> I just, haven't talked about it for years. Just let it out, Kevin. But there let we were. We were battling the Patriots, these evil, evil Patriots. We are driving down. We had the ball. It was time. We, we had control of the game. We were going to score. Not only did you have the ball, you were on the one-yard line. We had, and we had Marshawn Lynch. Give the ball to Lynch. Was it the two? Okay, or the, it was two. the two yard Same line. Close thing. enough. With Lynch, it's the same exact thing. And in a moment, just in this instant, we had we had seconds. We could we could have done multiple plays. So the coaches decide since we have multiple plays, let's try a quick pass because if it gets missed, then the clock stops and we still have time to run Marshawn. I understand why the coaches chose to do this. It doesn't mean I have to like it. But, I mean, we had, we had people over to our house. We had eaten food. We'd been celebrating. We loved football so very much. We loved the Seahawks so very much. We invited a new couple. It was their first week at church. And here they are in my living room when that pass happens. And Russell Wilson throws the ball. And the Patriots guy totally mashes through our guy, grabs the ball, and it's an interception. And you're looking, the time says zero, 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 and you're looking for a flag, and there's no flag, and you're just, everybody in the room, it just we were so defeated. There's no more time. There's no flag. It's really over. How can this be true? How can this be true? <laughs> this is exactly why I watch sports by myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's my dogs are scared of me. My was, daughter's scared of me. It was an awkward exit, honestly. My it, house yeah, just kind of cleared not, out, and that couple, I don't think, ever returned to church. They were just, they were so depressed. No, okay, so take that feeling, take that feeling inside of you. For those of you that that play in that game was a big deal, some of you are like, who cares? My wife, she's like, okay, that doesn't even make sense. Um, but take that feeling and multiply it by like a million. A billion even. A bajillion. A bajillion even. So that's what Paul is describing here in verse 9. That this is the fate of every person that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Now that statement is 
scary. It's extremely weighty. And unlike football, there's not another game. There's not another quarter. There's not another half. There's not another season. The life that we live right now is the only life that we have. YOLO, right? I mean, that's a thing. It is only this life. And so all throughout the the New Testament, Jesus teaches on this. He speaks on hell. But this description that Paul gives here at the end of verse 9 is, in my opinion, one of the most scary and weighty and impactful description of of hell and what is going to happen. Yeah, we have other descriptions of hell, uh, fire, darkness, anguish, pain, but nothing I don't think... I don't think any of us could even fathom what this means to be uh, in total absence of the presence of God. Even even evil men on this planet still get to live under the sunshine and feel warmth and and typically love and taste good food. I mean, there's just there are things that we get to enjoy that are part of the goodness of God. But when God's presence forever and ever and ever because God's judgment is final, is meted out, and and people are eternally separated from the goodness of God, that should shake us. We, there's, I don't know how we're so nonchalant. I don't know how I'm so nonchalant as to think, oh, you know, yeah, I know some people that aren't saved. I really hope I can share Christ with them someday. I think I'll have some nachos. I'm just that nonchalant about people's eternity, about them potentially being separated from God forever and ever and ever. And I'm so worried about stepping on toes and I'm so worried about offending someone. And I'm so worried about maybe getting persecuted or ridiculed for my faith that I ignore scriptures like this that are screaming in my face that if people don't trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't obey the good news of just accepting Jesus' substitution, that they have the most faithful eternity ever in store for them. And I just say, yeah, pass the nachos. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And I'm okay with it. That's got to change. It's a massive challenge for us to, to think about the justice and the rightness of God and how that impacts us not only in our lives, but how it impacts maybe family members that don't know. Definitely coworkers that you work with. Definitely neighbors and friends that you come in contact with. How are you, um, how are you sharing that? Are you being that light? Are you being a light that shows Jesus to others? When people look at your life and when you speak to others, can they tell that something's different? Because we should be doing everything in our power to make sure that people don't have that end. That that judgment won't be their end. That they will have relief. That they will have hope because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's something that we, we've got to think about that we've got to really struggle with. Are we being nonchalant, like you were saying? Are we just living our lives? Because we know the end for me, I I know my end. I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there for us. 
we've got to be sharing that good news with everyone else that we come in contact with. And the good news is so simple that Jesus Christ took our place, that he lived the perfect life that we absolutely had no ability to do on our own. And he died a sinner's death, and he offers us a pardon based on God pouring his judgment out on Jesus so that I don't have to receive his judgment and I can receive his mercy. And that, that's what he accomplished on the cross. On the cross, Jesus died um, the death I deserved. And his body was given for me. His blood was shed for me. Real pain, real uh, judgment from God poured out on Jesus. And he endured incredible suffering. 